Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Hey, Ben, it's Jerry. Hey, Jerry, it's Ben. Ben, how long have you been following NASCAR? A lifetime. Me too. And how fitting that we're the hosts of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. A Lifetime in NASCAR highlights NASCAR's illustrious history with analysis and anecdotes from a couple of NASCAR historians, namely my buddy Ben White and myself, Jerry Bunkowski. We're going to discuss with you some contemporary NASCAR topics and everything we've heard throughout the years. You'll learn about where the sport has been, where it is, and where it will go, and the inside scoop on some of the greatest or the craziest stories you'll ever hear. All right, welcome back to a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Ben Good Senior. We got a lot to talk about here on episode number 33. First, let's get the, the biggest news of the week out of the way. You know, obviously, a great win for Bubba Wallace and the 23XL team. Their first win, the team obviously co-owned by Denny Hamlin and Michael Jordan. Uh, great win for Bubba, his first career cup win. But, you know, it was more than just a win for Bubba. It was a win for NASCAR as well, too. I mean, you know, it, it really helped NASCAR's diversity message, which they've been, obviously, you know, their diversity has been very big with them over the years. Um, you know, for Bubba, you know, it, it's it, he's the first African American driver to win a Cup race since um, Wendell Scott back in 1963, so almost 60 years ago. And it was just, it was so good to see Bubba win, celebrating. I mean, I've seen some of the photos of him. Um, tell me about your thoughts about, you know, the win for Bubba, what it meant to him, what it meant to the sport, and you know what it means going forward for NASCAR and its diversity efforts as well, too. Well, it was a big win, Jerry, and you know, we, we talked about last week's show how the best places to be at Talladega is way out front or maybe maybe uh, a strategist sort of in the back because you have to be so careful there to not be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and just a little slip of the wheel here and there can cause so many problems among, you know, maybe 15, 20 cars, and, and we see that so much at Talladega. Uh, Bubba had that 23 car where it needed to be. He was competitive. He was out front. Uh, he, he had a great run going at Talladega. And, of course, being at the right place at the right time, uh, the rain uh, did come. And, you know, that that was that was terrible. I was there at Talladega this weekend. And, and uh, Sunday it was so frustrating because, it, you know, they would get the track – ready to race and here comes more rain and I, I remember one time just about the time i thought okay we're gonna race here we go on sunday and i walked out to pit road and i went out and ready to see the start 
and they just got the cars off of pit road and ready to go uh, for the pace laps and the bottom falls out again. So there yep. we go. But back to your question, uh, it's it's great for, for Bubba. It's great for NASCAR. It's a, it was a record that, uh, you know, Bubba was the first African-American driver to win a race since Wendell Scott. And he did that back at Jacksonville, Florida in 1963. You know, it's just good to, uh, to have him go to victory lane. You can see all the excitement uh, in his face as well as team owner Denny Hamlin. Uh, just, it's always great to have a new winner in victory lane. I love that. Anytime you have any, any of those type of Cinderella stories, I would love to see them, uh, Denny and uh, as a team owner, uh, Bubba Wallace uh, as the driver, go the full distance in a race. I'm not trying to take a thing away from, from Bubba, don't get me wrong, because he put himself in position to win. But I would love to see him take a full uh, distance checkered flag and to, to solidify them as a winning race team a second time out and say, okay, we, got, we went the full distance. I know drivers, uh, when they go to victory lane, uh, in, in those types of situations with rain shortened events, they too say, okay, we want it, but we want to go the full distance. And mm-hmm. that's, I, I want to see him be great to see him go the full distance in Charlotte. So, okay, we back this up with another victory and, and we went the whole distance and, uh, but congratulations to Bubba. Congratulations to, to the, to, to the 23 team. And Hey, I love it. I think it's great that he went to victory lane. Exactly. Well, you know, you, you raise a lot of good points, Ben. And, you know, the one thing I've always found, especially when guys earn their first NASCAR Cup win, and it is in a rain-shortened um, uh, race, it just seems to give them even greater confidence, greater momentum, greater uh, effort to win, like you said, that first true full-length race, you know, down the road. I mean, looking at where we're at right now, we're five races into the playoffs. We've got five more left to go. Um, you know, could theoretically, you know, Bubba win another race this year, with even with all the playoffs format? And, he, you know, I know he's not in the playoffs, but, I mean, could he win? And, and the one place I'm kind of picking that he has the best potential to win is, a, is Martinsville. So, yeah. but, I mean, you know, we've got, we've got um, the Roval at Charlotte. We've got uh, uh, Kansas. We've got Martinsville. What am I missing? I'm missing another track in there somewhere. Um, I'm missing one other track, but yeah. and, then, and then we got Phoenix at the end. Right. But I think Martinsville would be the best place for for Bubba to win. So, um, your your thoughts about that? I mean, you know, can Bubba win another race this year? And you know, what does winning at Talladega, you know, in terms of giving him more confidence, mean to him and his team? Well, you know, if you're going to win one and you really want to build your confidence, I think Talladega is the place because you're looking at 200 mile an hour speeds. You're looking at door to door. Uh, running against your competitors and anything can happen sort of racetrack that's that's a great place to build uh, confidence but it's funny you said Martinsville because I was sitting here saying exactly the same thing (laughs) Martinsville would be the track if I was going to pick one for him to win another one this year and and what's so unique about Martinsville is it's a beat and bang racetrack but we've seen some first-time winners come out of uh, Martinsville uh, looking way, way back by, well, Bobby Allison was one of the ones that I start to say Bobby, but no, Bobby was the one, one of the ones that never could win him. Martinsville. He won, he told me, he said, I won the, the Martinsville 495 <laughs> 25 times, but he would always mess up his brakes. He never could win there. But I, but going back, Buddy Baker won there. David Pearson won there. 
you know, Ricky Craven won there. It's one of those racetracks that you might see somebody win that you wouldn't expect to see win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you got the guys like Daryl Waltrip who won there a ton, Richard Petty there won, won there a ton. Uh, but yeah, Martinsville is one of those tracks that you could see a, a driver slip into victory lane that you wouldn't expect to see there. Uh, Harry Gant won there. Here's somebody we're going to talk about a little bit later in the mm-hmm. show. And, uh, you know, but that would be an excellent racetrack to get that second one and, and to go the full distance. Uh, usually they have some really good weather there at Martinsville too. Uh, clear skies on those, both the, uh, the spring events and the fall events. And it's a great racetrack to see anywhere you get a seat there at Martinsville. It's a, it's a really nice racetrack. So, yeah, good luck to Bubba. I would love to see him win another one this year. And that will just really, really up their confidence level going into 2022 when they when they go to Daytona for the first points-paying event. And uh, it, it's funny how when you get a, a first victory, you get that 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 uh, lead or whatever off your back and that and you say you finally say, okay, now we can breathe. Now we, we've got that first victory, that weight off our backs, and now we can finally get down to business. And I've heard Darrell Waltrip say many times, victories breed victories. And once you finally get that first one, then you can go on and, and start finally finding victory lane. It sort of gives you that real confidence to find it. Right. Let, let me to follow that up, let me ask you this. Um, we are so focused at this time of year, all the, always at this time of year, on the playoffs. What does it now, Talladega, obviously the biggest wild card there is, regardless if it's in the playoffs, out of the playoffs, what have you. But, you know, we saw um, Kyle Larson had some problems at, at Talladega. Uh, his, his points lead kind of dropped down somewhat. But when you see a, a non-playoff driver winning, what does that do or does it have any impact upon the, the, you know, right now we've got 12 guys left in the playoffs, you know, after Charlotte this coming weekend, we're going to have only eight guys left, but I mean, does it have any impact to the guys that are in the playoffs when a non-playoff driver wins a race like Bubba won at Talladega? Uh, well, Jerry, here's my thoughts on Talladega. I think I almost believe you have to sort of take Talladega out of the mix a little bit because okay. it's so, it's so unpredictable in as far as who could possibly win that one. Uh, and I say that because those guys that go into that race, they know that anybody could win uh, at the end of the day because it is so unpredictable. So when you see a guy who's not in the playoffs win that race like what we saw this weekend, uh, yeah, that they're like, eh, that's okay. We, we're going to go to Charlotte and start this points thing all over again. Because I'm not kidding you. Anybody in that 40 car field could have come up the winner. You know, we saw, uh, we've seen many guys go to Victor Lane at Talladega that you think, really? Really? Did he actually won? You know? Yeah. Because it, I'm no kidding. Anybody in that field could, could have come across and taken the checker flag uh, on Sunday for even, I mean, the whole distance. I mean, those cars are so equally matched there at Talladega when you get in those packs and you see a guy uh, who is 12th or 14th or 10th or whatever in the next lap, he's first. And uh, so, yeah, I sort of take Talladega out of that championship mix uh, as a wild card sort of race. And then we go back to Charlotte and maybe get back into that playoff picture again. You know, I was going to talk to you about Charlotte a little bit later, but you know, we're talking about it now, you know, let's talk about the the race this weekend's race at Charlotte. Um, You know, the, the Roval, 
Uh, you know, we've had what three, two or three races already on the Roval, um, but to me, it's still a very fresh, unpredictable track to the way I, I envision it. Because I mean, even though some guys have raced on it, you know, the last what two, three years, whatever it's been, um, it's still a track that you still are learning on. You know, mm-hmm. I don't care if you're Kevin Harvick, Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott, Michael McDowell, whomever. You know, it, it's it's still a very for lack of a better word, in my opinion, it's a green racetrack in the sense that anybody can win on that track. Looking at Charlotte, how do you kind of evaluate or handicap this race in terms of who has the best chance? I mean, I obviously there are a lot of guys who are you know who become very good road course specialists. They're going to have a good shot at winning. But you know, like you said about Talladega, I mean, uh, you know, Bubba wins there. Anybody can win it at, uh, at on the Roval. What are your thoughts about this weekend's race in Charlotte? Mm-hmm. Well, the ones that there's only two people you can go to right now, and if they'll tell you what to do, uh, and they may not, it, that's that's all you can really hope for. And that's Ryan Blaney and Chase Elliott because they've only had three. Ryan won the first one in 2018, and <laughs> Chase won in 19 and 20. Period. That's that's a really short list of winners <laughs> right. because that's you know, and so obviously. Ryan uh, will talk to uh, Joey Logano, and Chase Elliott will talk to all the Hendrick guys. So as far as tips to get around the place, but you're absolutely right. It is a very fresh, very new racetrack that they're still trying to learn. And there's still some of these guys that are talented on a road course, and a lot of them are still struggling. I remember many years when we would go to Sonoma and we'd go to Watkins Glen, the mentality of these guys was, Let's just get it over with. Mm-hmm. And you'd have four or five guys that loved road courses, and the other 35 or 38 guys is like, I want to go there. I want to get through the 90 laps we have to run. I'm out there for the food and the festivities, and let's just go home. I mean, I really did not like road courses. Mm-hmm. These newer guys, though, have picked up on the mentality of we're going to race on road courses more than we ever have. So I need to learn as much as I possibly can about road courses and they sort of grew up on road courses more so than the than the veteran older drivers did back in those 60s 70s 80s 90s because seriously they, they most of those guys in those eras just hated road courses yep, yep. and now these guys today the young guys and, and i joke about this but all of them look most of them look like they're 13 14 years old <laughs> they're just, you know they're just really really young looking kids even though they're not, they all look that way. Right. And so, uh, but the Roval, you're right. The Roval is still relatively new to everybody. And, and they're trying to learn the tricks. Uh, you know, I thought about this the other day about how we're only in our third, fourth year. So it's almost like, uh, I sort of put this analogy together. It's almost like going to Darlington in 1954. You know, something to that effect, because the track was built in 1950. And so, okay, we're in our fourth year at Darlington. How cool is that? It's yeah. almost that way. And you, you're you still trying to learn how to get around. And, and I, I use that comparison, but Darlington was so, so much different in 1954 than it is today. It was that back then it was a single groove ribbon type racetrack. Same thing with this Roval. It is so knew that these drivers are still trying to learn how to get around the place they've not had any 
well, I won't say any, they have had a very, very limited time on this racetrack. They don't get a lot of practice, if any. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to figure out uh, how to get around the place. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, asking the question of who may be the wild card or who may be the person to look at this time. You know, Larson, I think, is going to do pretty well, Kyle Larson. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to obviously go back to to Ryan Blaney and Chase. They they seem to do well every time they go there. Uh, you know, maybe a Christopher Bell this time. Christopher might do well. Uh, it just it depends on communication, depends on race car, depends on temperature, depends on so many factors. But yeah, they they're getting better each time they go, but they're limited as to how much time they get on the racetrack. So it'll be fun to see if we have a, a new face or we're going to go back to. Uh, you know, having Chase and, and Ryan once again master of the place. Well, you know, my, my the guy that I, I I always root for this guy, and I and I, I'm not a I I don't try to be a fan because I try to be as neutral as possible. It's just that's my ethic, you know, in terms of being a journalist. Mm-hmm. But one guy that I just kind of have this this um, feel for that I just want to see him do well, and he's actually become a lot of people haven't really realized he's become a very good road course specialist. He hasn't won, but <clears throat> excuse me. He has the potential to win on the roll, and that's Michael McDowell. I mean, he won, obviously, the Daytona 500 earlier this year, his first ever cup race win. But the guy does really, really well in road courses. And, you know, going back to what you said a little earlier, you know, I can remember back 10, 15 years ago when I was uh, covering NASCAR for Yahoo Sports. I mean, I wrote a number of columns about how drivers hated road courses. I mean, they just, it was kind of like, you know, going to Talladega, you know, you, you get there, you do your thing, get the heck out of there as fast as you can. And that's kind of the way the, the mindset was at, uh, at road courses. I remember talking specifically to Kevin Harvick, and we're talking probably, I'm going to guess 2004, 2005, and he just was like, he hated road courses. And now he's become a very good road course specialist because, you know, he's had to learn, he's had to adapt, and, you know, I think that a lot of drivers today, especially the veteran drivers, they came in with the mindset they they weren't going to like road course racing. But now, when you look at the schedule, like for 2022, we've got, what, seven road course races, mm-hmm. I think? Um, these guys really enjoy it. It really brings them out, brings out their driving talents more so than even at a place like Talladega or Daytona. I mean, those places are so um, difficult to race at in their own right. But here with Charlotte, or you know Charlotte, or or um, you know um, uh, Coda, or you know uh, uh, um, uh, Watkins Glen, Sonoma, etc., you know these guys, it really brings out their talent. It really shows who they are, what they are, and what they have. And I I like that. I mean, I think that you know if you would compare the drivers of 15 years ago to the drivers of today, the same guys I'm talking about, you know mm-hmm. they would have gone from oh I hate it to now oh I love it. It's the best thing we have. Yeah, it's almost a situation that they they have to love it uh, because there's so many points on the line and there's, what, seven races that if they go in, you're right, if they go into that mentality saying, I don't like it, uh, they could lose a tremendous amount of points if they do poorly on those right. tracks. So they have to fall in love with it, marry the idea, you know, you love it after the honeymoon, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. exactly. They, really, they really have to just, I just love, love, love road course races. I just love them, you know, what right. is, because if you don't love them, your you're seven races and bad points, just forget about being a champion. Exactly. You got to really love them. And, 
you know, that have that, you're right, have that mentality because if you don't, it's going to be a long season. Right. Let me let me ask you this. I know we want to talk about some other things, but I wanted to ask you this. I'm going to throw this out to you because we're talking about road courses racing right now. The one thing, you know, I cover not only NASCAR, but IndyCar as well. And the one thing I really, really, really like about IndyCar is not only the road course races they have and also the super speedways, but I love the street course races. I mean, you're talking, you know, St. Petersburg, Nashville, Long Beach, etc. Do you foresee, because NASCAR has embraced road course racing so much, do you foresee that we might see a street course race Let's say, well, how, if do you see a, a street course race in the future? And if so, how far in the future do you see it? Yeah, I, I do, because I think we've seen so many changes in NASCAR with the cars, with the drivers, with the schedule. Yeah, that doesn't that wouldn't surprise me at all. And I see that probably, where are we, 2020, maybe 2025 or 6, even, mm-hmm. maybe earlier. Because, I mean, the benefits of doing something like that and they, is the fact that you don't have to build a speedway to get it done. Right. They can go to IndyCar and say, all right, tell us, let me see your playbook. Right. Let me see how you put this together. What's the good, what's the bad, what's the pros, what's the cons? Um, you know, so yeah, I, I really do. I mean, we've seen so many changes in NASCAR in the past five years. I think in the next three to five, you'll you'll see you might see two or three even come up. And it opens up new markets uh, for NASCAR to go to, maybe even some of the same venues that it, mm-hmm. as IndyCar has gone to. Uh, and they can maybe, who, you know, we've seen races to where NASCAR and IndyCar have raced in the same, uh, at the same racetracks. Nothing would surprise, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they joined forces on some of these and had a NASCAR race and IndyCar race on the streets in the same weekend. Exactly. So, yeah, that nothing. I used to say, nah, that'll never happen. I don't say that. <laughs> never, <laughs> nothing would surprise me at all. Because, well, yeah, and I, I, you know, I can see where with the new car, with the new mentalities, with the new younger drivers trying to attract younger fans. Yeah, I could see that happening very easily in the next uh, three to five years. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you raise a good point. You mentioned about uh, the, the collaboration or, you know, borrowing pages from the IndyCar playbook. You know, to me, now, the street course races that IndyCar has, they're always sell, sold out. You know, make it, you know, it could be St. Pete, Long Beach, you know, Nashville was a fantastic success. Um, I don't know if NASCAR would want to do a same weekend uh, street race with IndyCar on the same weekend, but... At the same time, some of the markets that IndyCar does have street course races, and in particular, uh, I would look at Toronto. Uh, one, you know, I know they haven't raced the last two years because of COVID, but uh, I think Toronto would be a fantastic venue for a, for a NASCAR to race at. I think Nashville, even though you've got the Nashville Super Speedway, uh, you know, race there, I think the you know street course race there would be a natural. Maybe even Long Beach, but you know, you've also got places like Orlando, maybe you know Dallas, Fort Worth. Although you, got, of course, you've got races at Texas Motor Speedway. Um, there's a lot of venues out there that I think could make it happen, and I agree with you. I'd say 2025, 2026. I think we're going to definitely be seeing a street course race. It's just a matter of you know where it's going to be at. But I totally agree with you on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of change uh, that continues to happen and the cars aren't the standard cup series car anymore with the gen seven mm-hmm. 
um, it's, it's beginning to look more to me a lot more like uh, SCC or Trans Am type car. Uh, it, you know, I, and see, I'm an old school guy. We talk about this a lot, but I'm old school and I'm trying to embrace the new as it comes along and I need to or go cut grass. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I'm trying to do that. So, you know, I understand the need to try to attract more fans and maybe a younger generation of fans. I understand. So yeah, it's, it's a new, a new wave of, of change and a new way of doing things. It's a little hard for us old guys to, to do that because this is what we grew up with and it's been a certain way for a long time. And I, and I'm not knocking that because I mean, we've had a lot of fun and covering NASCAR history, as we say, a lifetime in NASCAR, the way it's been for many years. I guess what I'm trying to say is they're making shoes differently and I got to put my feet in them. Yeah. <laughs> I can fit my feet, you know? So I'm trying, you know, I'm, maybe I should dress differently, or, you know, I embrace it a little more. So I'm giving it a chance. Let's exactly. Exactly. I love that, Ben. I love that. All right. Let's, let's talk about, you know, this is obviously episode number 33 of a lifetime in NASCAR. And we, you know, we really kind of hit a sweet spot. The fans enjoy it. We talk about it, you know, the number 30, you know, we, uh, and the number it's associated with each episode. And obviously this episode is number 33. So we're going to talk about the car number 33 in NASCAR. And then, you know, you, you have some great, you know, historical points here that you sent me. And I, I'm just going to kind of lead off with, you know, the first time that the number 33 was ever run in NASCAR competition was in 1950 in the Southern 500 down in Darlington, with Wally Campbell, and Wally was, let's just say, less than illustrious. He started 60th and finished, well, 54th. But you know, <laughs> we we've seen that that number, and it's become such a, a, a you know a key number uh, across the last you know 60 some years uh, since that first time it appeared in 1950. Tell me about the 33. I mean, your your thoughts about um, you know it's 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 got a history. Uh, you know, we've have seen some guys that have really done very well in it. Um, you know, Harry Gant's a good example. We'll talk more about him in a second. But tell me about the 33 in, in general terms about um, its significance in the sport. Yeah, 33 is a number that you know, since uh, uh, Mr. Campbell ran it in 50, 1950, it really didn't go to Victor Lane for a very long time until the great Harry Gant took it there. Uh, April of 1982, I mean, yeah, 1982, and he was driving for a couple guys, a well-known guy that a lot of people watched on, on movies, uh, Burt Reynolds, who owned the car, and Hal Needham, a director. Right, right. They had a race team in NASCAR in the early uh, early 80s, and uh, he took the car to Victor Lane for the first time there in 1984 at Martinsville. We touched on that earlier, and... Uh, that's the first time it went to Victory Lane, which surprised me. A lot of these, you know, we we surprise ourselves with this show sometimes because you think, like we talked about Ricky Craven and driving the 32 car, it went forever before it went to Victory Lane. So mm -hmm. the same thing with the 33. Uh, the first time he took the that car to Victory Lane. And then later in the year, here we are coming up on Charlotte uh, Motor Speedway. Uh, that same year, Harry Gant took that car to Victory in the National 400. October 10th, 1982 at Charlotte on the Oval, long before the Roval was uh, even thought about. Mm -hmm. And uh, he led 24 laps in that race and uh, took the car. That was his first super speedway victory. 
But yeah, the 33 was always associated more than anybody, I guess, with uh, Harry Gant, even though, uh, you know, Clint, uh, Clint Boyer ran, won three races with it. Joe Nemechek won a race with it. Mm -hmm. All told, it has 22 victories in that, in the Cup Series uh, overall. But you know something I found with the race in October 10th, 1982 that Harry won? This is a really interesting fact that I just ran across. In that race, they had 40 cars. 17 cars failed to qualify. Oh, wow. That race. Oh, wow. Almost half the number of cars that were in the race failed to qualify. And one of the cars that did not qualify in the race was Kyle Petty in the 42 SCP Petty Enterprises car. He failed to qualify that day. Uh -huh. But, yeah, it's just amazing that they had 17 cars that packed up and went home because they couldn't. So they have 57 cars trying to qualify for that race. I just That just amazes me that many cars tried to make it in the field. What was I mean, what, you may not know this because it's so long ago, but was there a... Uh, a common thread for the 17 cars that, I mean, was, was it one thing that most of them just failed to do? Or do you, you I mean, do you remember what well, part of the reason was? I think, uh, quite honestly, I think it was just, just failure of speed. You know, I think they just couldn't get their cars fast enough. But, you know, and it's still probably to the same extent today. But Charlotte Motor Speedway for many, many years was a, a crown jewel of the, if you had, if you wanted to race and make it big, you, you raced and won at Charlotte, Motor mm -hmm. Speedway, especially in this area, especially the 600. Mm -hmm. I mean, to have qualified for the 600 and to have won the 600 was, man, you really hit it big if you won the 600. Right. And it's still that way, I guess, to a degree now. But I mean, back in that era, the, the let me say this in the right way, the, the cars were not as sophisticated i guess is a good way to say it mm -hmm. as they are today mm -hmm. okay some of the back marker cars back in those days were not as as nice as they are obviously was not as nice as they are today and so um yeah so if you could make the field for the 600 that was step one that was a great accomplishment step two um if you could have a top 10 or a top five that was really big of course if you could win the 600 and be the best and be the best against the best you really accomplished something in that era and uh, but winning at charlotte was a major milestone and so yeah some of those cars um, i'm not trying to downgrade the cars i'm really not trying to say that what i'm trying to say is uh the quality of the cars maybe just weren't as good as, as some of the top top teams you had back marker cars, mid-pack cars, and you maybe had 10 or 12 really good cars. Yes. Not right. like today. Exactly. And so today you've got 40 really good cars that are equally matched. It wasn't that way in that era. And so, yeah, but 17 cars packed up and went home. I just, that's just an amazing stat. I right. just, wow. So and Kyle was one of them, sadly, but uh, he went on to win. 10 races in his career, but a Petty Enterprises 42 car had to go home. I just think that's pretty amazing. Exactly. It's like, it's almost like having sending Richard Petty home, you know, that kind of thing. But, yeah. but, you know, you mentioned about Harry Gant and, and I'm going to say this and I mean this with all due respect to Harry. To me, Harry was one of the better drivers out there, you know, but the impression I got about Harry, he never got 
the respect or the credit that he was due. Um, I had a long talk with a friend, a mutual friend of ours about this oh, probably about two years ago, and he actually worked with Harry for a number of years, and he agreed with me. He said that Harry was a great driver out there. You know, He won all those races, but he just never seemed to get the the acknowledgement, if you will, especially from the media. I mean, you know, they'd talk about, you know, Richard Petty or David Pearson or Cale Yarborough, Jeff Gordon, you know, you'd go down the list, Dale Earnhardt, but they really didn't talk about Harry that much. And I, I never could understand that. I mean, Harry, you know, he always had a smile on his face, great guy, great personality. I've interviewed him a couple of times, you know, just an absolute treat to talk to the guy, still remembers his career, you know, like it was yesterday, but I just don't think he got the recognition he deserved. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I do agree with that. And I think the maybe the reason for that was because he was so down to earth. Mm -hmm. He wasn't, when you did an interview with him, he wasn't uh, very talkative. Uh, he was and he wasn't, if it makes sense. He, he was uh, very, uh, what's the word? He was very down, I, I said down to earth, but he's very... Um, uh, he, he could just humble. How about humble? Humble's maybe, a good that's, maybe that's, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Right. Uh, he, he built houses when he was yep. racing and yep. he just Monday through Wednesday, he built a house, work yep. on a house and get on a plane or get in a car or whatever, go to the racetrack. And, um, and he set out as what, what is so interesting about Harry? He set out to say, okay, in this particular year, I'm going to retire. Mm -hmm. whether I'm on top or on the bottom, whatever the case was. And he said, he said that in like early eighties, like, mm -hmm. okay, when I'm 55 years old, I'm going to retire. doesn't matter if I'm winning 10 championships. If I'm, if I've won 200, like Richard Petty, I'm going to retire. And I, I admired that. I mean, he knew what he wanted to do and he set his plan in, in motion and he did it. And, uh, but to talk to him and, and hang out with him, I went, I remember one time I went to, to his farm and we actually dug post holes together and <laughs> worked on the farm. He said, well, if you're going to talk to me, we're going to have to, you know, i got work to do. <laughs> so I, ended up, I ended up, okay, well, can you grab that post hole digger over there? I'll share. So we had good stuff while we were talking. And I got to tell you to be what, you know, even now he's, I don't know why, how old, like even then, at 55 years old or something, the man was in really, really good shape. Right. And working circles kind of around me because he was like, he worked like that all the time. And he got in the race car, and that's why he did so well, I guess, in a race car. Because, well, this is just driving a race car 200 miles an hour. That I, I built, uh, I put a roof on a house yesterday. What's the big deal? <laughs> and, you know, so that was kind of his mentality. And so, uh, yeah, but just, he just really didn't have, he didn't, I think that's, to, to your point, I think that's the reason why he maybe didn't get the respect, so to speak, because he he didn't have a lot to say. Yep. When he did, he didn't say a lot, if that makes sense. Right, and right. What's so cool about Harry, if you went to talk to him about uh, why did you crash or what happened, said, oh, my, my foot just slipped off the gas pedal <laughs> or my foot slipped off the brake pedal and I hit the wall. He was, he was so, so honest. Yes, <laughs> like, yep. You need to lie a little bit, Harry. Somebody maybe, you know, punched you in the wall. No, no, I, my foot just slipped off the brake and I hit the wall. You know, one of those things. And But you know what? The cool thing, Jerry, was I, I talked to Andy about this. You know the time in 1991 when he won all those races, uh, like four in a row, five in a row, right. September and all that. 
Right. I mean, he everything was going really, really well for him. They they just he Andy came clean a little bit later on and told us a few tricks that they did to the race car, which weren't exactly in the rules. That's another story. <laughs> but he's turned something and Harry confirmed it. He said, you know, one of the things that helped me the most in that era was that I asked uh, Andy to help me put something in the race car to help me. And he said, well, I said, my feet were really burning in the bottom of this race car and they was really hot. And he said, well, Andy said, why can't you just get me a piece of three quarter inch plywood and we'll just put it in the bottom of the car and I can put my feet on it. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. <laughs> so, so as it turns out, if you go to Andy's shop, that car is in the lobby and really like in Asheville or wherever that it's up in the mountains. Up right. there. I can't think of the name where it is. And you go look, and that piece of three-quarter inch plywood is in the in, under the brake pedals, and that that he said that thing helped me the most because my feet got so hot, and all we did is put a piece of three-quarter inch plywood inside the race car. Okay, how did they get past inspection? That's what I want to know. Back in that era, they let them do it. Really, and I asked the same thing, and he said that's they just let us put it in there, and that was all it was was a, a three-quarter inch piece of plywood that we cut down and put under the brake pedal and the gas pedal so my feet wouldn't get hot. And he said, that's all it was. I'll be done. I'll be done. And I know, and I, and I asked the same thing. I said, well, why did how, and first, and second thing, how, why did it not get catch fire? He said, it was just in a place where it was, it just didn't get fire. I mean, you think something, what did that, I don't know what that cost then, eight, six, seven dollars. Right. You know, to put a piece of wood in there. But he said that helped me the most when my feet didn't get hot. That, wow. that and I, the point I'm making here is that was just that normal good old boy. Hey, put me a piece of wood in there, and my feet won't get hot. Okay, right. and that helped. He said that helped me win those races. <laughs> Maybe there's a lot more to it than that, but that was Harry. You know, right? Right. Well, I, I I've got to say this, Ben, you have got to be the only man on the face of this earth who went to do an interview and wound up digging a fence post or a fence hole po- you know, pole, a fence pole so post. If you, if you go to Taylorsville with me sometime and we get down there close to his shop, his, his farm, I can point out the four or five poles <laughs> that I put in the ground. Uh, I, he said, well, if we're going to talk, I'm busy, but if you do that, well, we'll just put, I said, fine, Harry, we'll talk while I put holes in the ground. That so, is great. That is yeah, great. You know, he was just that down to earth kind of guy. And I said, I'll be glad to help you. And we talked and put, you know, dug holes and, you know, he's just that kind of guy. I love Harry. Right, right, right. You, sh- you should have sent him a bill for your services. I mean, at least get, you know, 20 bucks out of helping him you know, dig some posts. I should have. Yeah, and I should have framed that 20. He, but <laughs> No, and Harry, he probably would have not paid me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, but, he... you know, talking about Harry, though, I was asking, I had a wood issue once in, in my wood shop, and he he even helped me with that. He told me how to cut it, and, you know, because uh, it was, twi- he said, listen, it said uh, at 9 o'clock in the morning, he told me about a house he had one time, about how in the morning, he said, I had a beam that at nine o'clock in the morning, it was twisted a certain way. And at like nine o'clock that night, it had, it had twisted, it was hot. Hmm. It had twisted almost the opposite direction. He, mm-hmm. said, wood was, he said, you don't know what wood's gonna do. Cause it just, it was, it had twisted so bad that the heat had gotten it. And he was trying to help me with what I was working on. Mm-hmm. He used that as an example 
of a, a barn or something he was working on. He said, wood will twist so bad. He, that's what he's trying to tell me, how, mm-hmm. how to fix my problem, but he, some things he had run into. He had built so many houses over the years. And see, that's the thing. He built houses during the week, and he'd race against Jack Ingram and, mm-hmm. and Sam Ard and all those guys on the weekends in Asheville and around in the, in the late model stuff before mm-hmm. he ever got into the cup stuff. And uh, just just a real, I can't say it enough, just a really down-to-earth guy that, oh, by the way, just for fun, I go run, I, I race in the Cup Series. But I really I really build houses is what I do. Yeah. But I just, you know. So anyway, just I can't say enough good about Harry. He's just really neat, really neat guy. And owned a great steakhouse for a lot of years, too. I did he? I did not know that. Tell me about that. Yeah, he had a, a steakhouse up in Taylorsville, you know, Harry Gant Steakhouse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just... Uh, a restaurant he had on the side. I guess he made too much money or something. So <laughs> I don't think the steakhouse is open anymore. But uh, yeah, you could get a great steak and salad, and just like a you know, just like, like a normal steakhouse. And he had it up there in Taylorsville for years. And uh, he would pop in from time to time, and people shake hands and on people and stuff. But just a just a great steakhouse. Yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, this may be hard to quantify because. Harry raced in a whole different era, but is, and, and I don't mean this to disrespect anybody else, but of all the drivers today, is there anybody that maybe compares to Harry in terms of like personality? I mean, not necessarily, not necessarily maybe, well, I guess I could say a little bit about his driving that, you know, they would compare him with him, but I mean, is there anybody that's, was, is so down to earth that is kind of like Harry that you, you can kind of draw a comparison to with? Um, the one, I guess the first one that comes to mind as immediately would be maybe Truex. Yeah. yeah. Truex. Because Martin, I'm telling you straight up, Martin is about as down to earth as you can find. And, you know, he's a, he's a winning cup series driver, but if you get him talking about fishing or hunting or just sitting on the porch, having a beer, or, I mean, he doesn't, if you didn't know who Martin Truex was and you passed him on the street and you said, hey, can you tell me where Maple Avenue is? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a down here and you go there. I mean, if you didn't know who he was, he wouldn't act like, oh, guess what? I'm Martin Truex. No, he wouldn't act that way. He's a very, very down-to-earth guy. Very much the way Harry is. Um, I love Martin because he just, he, I can't say, I don't know how the best way to say it. He's just, I don't want you to know I'm Martin Truex. Yeah. I, want you, I want to be your friend. I don't want you to know I'm a race car driver. And I, I have so much respect for Martin for that, that reason. I've said this on the show before, but I'll tell it one more time. There was a time I was doing something for Pole Position Magazine mm-hmm. that we work with. And I, and I said this totally wrong. I stuck my foot, my tw- size 12 foot in my mouth. This time, and I said... <laughs> I was trying to do a piece on who is the person you're named after. And I said it totally wrong. I was trying to find out the name of who was, where did the name Martin come from? And I said, well, who are you named after? He said, well, of course I'm named after my dad. I'm Martin. <laughs> and so I said, and I, and I was so embarrassed. I said it wrong. And so later on I said, Martin, I said, what I was trying to find out was where does the name Martin come from? He said, I know, man, I was just pulling your, your leg. I was <laughs> So for weeks after that, I said, you do know I'm named after my dad, right? You know, he's giving me a hard time. And so, you know, he's just real down to earth. And uh, 
And he did say, oh, by the way, I really don't know where the name Martin came from. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, just picking with each other. But I said, I stuck my foot in my, I didn't say it correctly. I was trying to find that out. Right. And so he just, he's kind of, he just grinned real big and razzy about stuff. And that, to ask your question in a long-winded way, I would, I would think Harry and Martin are a lot alike in that respect. Yeah. He would, he doesn't want you, he doesn't boast about himself. Right. And Harry doesn't either. It's just like, Oh, I, I came from a fishing boat up in New Jersey, but I raced on the Cup Series. And, and Harry is, I build houses for a living, right. but I also race in the Cup Series. Same exactly. thing. Right, right. Well, you know, you, 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 you and I are definitely on the same page because, I mean, if I had to pick my three guys that, would com, you know, uh, that I would compare today to Harry Gant you know, in his prime, Truex would be on their list. Two other guys, though, I think one – you might be surprised at this one. I'm going to pick Chase Elliott as one of the other ones. I think that you know he's still very, very humble, and even though he won the championship last year, yeah, you know, he hasn't gotten to his to his head. And the other guy I'd, I'd pick as a you know kind of a Harry Gant of today is Ryan Blaney. You know, very humble guy too as well. That's so, but I, mean, you know, but I mean Harry, he definitely laid the foundation. I'm not talking about a house. I mean, he definitely laid the foundation <laughs> for a lot of guys today to show how to be, you know, as a racer, both on and off the racetrack. I mean, he, you know, to me, and I don't like to use this word very often, but I, when I do use it, it's because I mean it. Harry epit, uh, epitomized the word class. And mm -hmm. I think that you could say that about Truex. You can say that about Chase Elliott. You can say that about Ryan Blaney as well. They're all in the same category. I do agree very much, yeah. Yeah, I love, I love Chase too because he's one of those that, you know, just – very humble, very down to earth, very, uh, very appreciative of where he is. And Ryan's the same. Uh, yeah, you could just, all three of those guys, if you, you could take them all three to dinner and probably have an incredibly good experience. You'd have to get a table somewhere in the back so you could have a full dinner. <laughs> but I mean, they just would probably fill your ears with some of the funniest stories that, and that's what I enjoy about talking to, those guys from that back in that era, and same thing. If you could get Richard Petty and Bobby Allison and maybe Kill Yarborough to go to dinner with you sometime, and they would feel. I mean, and that's the thing when you t when you write books about these guys, the older guys, you think you've got some of the really good stuff until you go to dinner with them, and then, then they'll tell you even better stuff. Like, oh, I don't know. I didn't think about it. So anyway, that, that, there's so so many funny stories and fun stories. And I'm sure these guys have got some of them <clears throat> as well. But, uh, yeah, just a lot of a lot of fun guys to talk to, for sure. Well, uh, refresh my memory. And this is going back probably, oh, I don't know, 10, 12 years maybe. Wasn't there a – or am I confusing this now? There was somebody that did a dinner thing. And I, I seem to recall some guys in NASCAR were in it. That you know they would go to, uh, to dinner and they would record it. I know they, there was an NFL uh, show like that because a buddy of mine was involved in it. But I thought there was maybe for a short period of time a, a NASCAR or a racing-related theme sh uh, show that these guys would go to dinner and they would you know like you're saying they would they would talk about. It. But I'm I'm drawing a total blank on it now. I I, I seem to recall, but it. I, don't know. I gotta say I'm not a hundred percent on that one. 
Okay, that's 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 fine. That's fine. That's fine. But um, you know, let's 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 you know uh, shift gears a little bit here. You know, obviously we've got the Rovo this weekend. Then we've got Texas. Then we've got Kansas. Then we've got Martinsville, and then the big one, of course, the the season-ending race in in Phoenix. This is a very crucial race for everybody in the playoffs because it's the cutoff race, the second round cutoff race. We emerge from this race on Sunday, and we're only going to have eight drivers left going into the the third round of the playoffs. Who's 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 safe? Who's not safe, in your opinion? Oh boy. Well, um, I keep. I'm sorry. I keep beating this drum, but <laughs> you know, I, I stay. I feel like Larson is safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he is. Um, you know, I feel like Denny is safe. I think that's he's he's going to be. Um, well, it's just. That's what's so fun about these playoffs is because um, you just you just don't know how all this stuff is going to play out, and that's what that's where all the suspense is going to come from. Mm-hmm. Come going into Charlotte, though, you're going to have guys that are once again they're going they're sitting on the bubble. Are they good at road at the Roval? Are they not? Uh, you know that's that's going to be so hard to determine how they do, and I mean. I can say this is probably a lot of antacids being eaten <laughs> over the next uh, few days. You know, here it's almost like a roller coaster ride. Okay, we're good for today. Okay, let's go to the next three. And then, uh, and then all the strategies you're talking about crew chiefs, all these meetings, your head hurts of all this strategies you're talking about. Then you go to this race, this race, and then, all right, here we are again. We're back to this trauma, the pressure, more antacid, more rollaids, all these things. <laughs> And you, and you're almost like, okay, are we in? Are we out? Can we just settle this? And then and you, maybe some guys have a relief to know, all right, we did our best. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just the pressure. Exactly. The exactly. Pressure. Trying to figure out where we go from here. You know. Well, you know the one thing, and I'm looking at the standings here, Ben. Now, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I mean this with all due respect, but Alex Bowman is sitting 12th. He's the last one on the bubble. He's 52 points out of the, you know, out of qualifying to, to advance to the third round. He is definitely in a, in a, you know, must-win situation. As is his teammate from team uh, from Hendrick Motorsports, William Byron. He's 44 points behind the, the or below the cutoff line. Christopher Bell is 28 points below the cutoff line. So all three of those guys are definitely in must-win situations. But here's the thing that I find intriguing, Ben, and I wanted to get your take on this as well. So we've got. You know, essentially three guys that are really, really on the bubble at the bottom line, if you will. You've got Kevin Harvick, who is nine points below the bubble. And then you've got Chase Elliott, the defending champion of the NASCAR Cup Series. He's nine points to the good, as is Kyle uh, Busch. You know, one of those guys is not going to go on to round three. Perhaps, you know, I mean, and if, if there's a a freak occurrence where Christopher Bell or William Byron or Alex Bowman win at the Roval, there's a possibility that two of those guys may be not, may not make the go in advance to the round, you know, the third round. I, I you know, my, we've been talking about, about uh, Kevin Harvick the last couple of shows. I'm going to bring him up again. I mean, Harvick, even though he's not won a race, he's a very good road course driver. And I think that it's going to be, you know, this whole race is going to be boiled down to just him, Elliot and Bush. I think that, you know, you can throw out all the other guys because you, you can pretty much gather that, like you said, uh, uh, you know, Kyle Larson and Denny Hamlin, they're going to make the, the, the uh, third round. But 
I just I my my I'm just looking at those three guys in particular, Elliot, Harvick, and Bush, Kyle Bush, and I got my doubts on, on somebody. When someone is not well, at least one of those, maybe two of those are not going to make it. Your your thoughts about those three guys? Yeah, yeah, I know. You know, we've talked about Harvick a bunch, and I mean, he's in a position to where he's he's got to put everything out there hoping to go forward. I mean, he's not going to go into Charlotte thinking, I just hope it's over and so yeah. what? I mean, I've said that. I, when I said so what in the past show, I meant that uh, you just you just throw everything at the kitchen sink and see what happens. He sort of had a year like that anyway. Yeah, he's got to go into Charlotte hoping that uh, they have a really good run. He is good on road courses. He's had his successes there. Uh, he's got to just put it all together and see how it goes but it's so unpredictable that's the problem he you can turn all the bolts and nuts on this race car you can have all the strategy in, in the world but you can't control what everybody does around you somebody could take him out we've seen cars go into that first uh what do you call it a dog leg or whatever going to turn one and the brakes fail and you mm-hmm. get a pile of cars so you see people spin in front of you and and it's so i keep saying it, it's so unpredictable there so uh, it's just going to be hard to, to figure out. Uh, the guys, they just got to go into it with everything they have and just, I guess, hope for the best, really. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, if I, if, with my, the way I look at those three guys, I think that Harvick will make it. I don't think Chase Elliott's going to make it. And Kyle Busch, I'm kind of still on the fence. Whether and I, I mean, again, it depends upon you know what those guys behind or below, uh, you know, Christopher Bell, William Byron, and Alex Bowman. If one of them wins the the race, well, then, like I said, we we're going to lose two of those guys that are either nine points to the good or nine points to the bad right now. Um, but I think that Harvick will make it. He'll advance to the third round. I don't think Chase Elliott, the defending champ, will. I think that. I mean, he's very good at, at, at their race course. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. I just, like you said, I mean, one, you know, mistake by somebody else could cost him, you know, a chance at the championship. Right. You know, Jerry, I'll say this. Of the two, if you look at Chase and you look at uh, Kyle Busch, if you go to, if, <laughs> I'll use this analogy, if, if they're standing in an airplane and there's only one parachute, it's probably going to go to Chase because, I say that because it just seemed like poor old Kyle Busch. He seems to get bent sheet metal everywhere he goes. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. Think right. about what I'm saying. If all right, Chase Elliott has had two previous victories at that racetrack. Yep. Right. Kyle, I don't know why. It just seems like he's. If you look up, it's Kyle that's got the smoke coming out the back with the bent sheet metal. So yeah. Standing in an airplane, there's only one parachute. Probably going to go to Chase. Well, I mean, Kyle could just wrap his his arms around Chase and he'll go. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I can see Chase, you know, grabbing something and beating him. You know, exactly, exactly. He's going to say this parachute will hold both of us. You got to let go of me. Exactly. So, well, see. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to this race. I think that, yeah. you know. Uh, we had Talladega in previous years as the cutoff race to the you know to the third round, and that was always, you know, a race that was so so difficult for a lot of guys. I guess in in concept, you can probably say that the Roval's a little bit, and I don't want to use the word easier, but a little bit more um, able 
is probably a good word for drivers to get around as opposed to like Talladega because you know yeah it's going to be a very big challenge it's you know it's essentially another wild card race but I think there's a more of a uh, you know uh, less of a chance for chaos and mayhem as you would have at Talladega but saying that the role will certainly can have chaos and mayhem as we've seen in the past too as well oh yeah you remember 2018 where it was uh, Truex and Johnson. Yes. Yep. For it, third place, uh, Ryan Blaney was watching the show, had a good seat, best seat in the house. And all of a sudden, the two of them crashed 100, 100 yards from the start yep. finish line. He's like, oh, wow, I just won this thing. That's right. So you know, it could be that. It really could be that. So that's the fun. That's where it all, that's what keeps the fans on the edge of their seats, you know, and us too. That's, that, you can't. You can't start almost uh, at this time of the year. You can't start a story or a, a, the lead paragraph anymore because you just don't know what's going to happen. You can, I've thrown away a few stories in my time thinking <laughs> I knew what I was getting ready to write that they messed me up, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, which is good. That's great because it, it keeps it exciting. So, exactly. Well, Ben, you know, as always, I've had a great time talking with you here on the Lifetime of NASCAR. You know, we've talked a lot about. You know, Talladega, Bubba's win. We talked about the Roval. We talked about Harry Gann. And I, I'm still trying to get my wrap my head around Ben White digging a, a fence post. I mean, it is, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a funny story. It's a great story. But Harry should have paid you. I'm sorry. You should send him a yeah. bill, you know. <laughs> you know I got to tell you, and, here, and it's still the truth now. Harry's tight with his money, okay? <laughs> I mean, that's that's probably why he retired early and started a steakhouse. Okay, he's he's tight. Gotta say, good man, but he's tight with his money. Right, right. Well, you know, there's one thing I forgot to ask you about Harry, and I'm yeah. glad I'm glad you mentioned about me retiring. Yeah, here's a guy who went to 55 years old before he retired. We don't see that today. Will we ever see it? I mean, you know, are, I mean, a guy like Kyle Busch. I think, you know, he's what 34. I think he is now 35. Whatever he is. If he has the desire to go another 20 years, I think he could do it. But do you think there's anybody in the current crop of drivers, you know, be they veterans or even young guys, will we ever see another guy go past 50, do you think? No, I don't. I'll tell you why real quick. I don't think so because I don't think the politics for sponsorships will allow it because I think, look at Ryan Newman. You know, Ryan, bless his heart, I love him. I think he's uh, he's not going to be given an opportunity to have a ride. Maybe, hopefully he will, but maybe not. I don't know how old he is, but I mean, in 2022, I'm just saying that I think uh, I think sponsorships and the, the tide of younger drivers and the whole scenario of the sport, I don't think you're going to see anybody go past maybe 42, 3 or something like that. I don't know how old. I don't have the numbers of the drivers in my head, but I don't think you're going to see people go to 52, three, four anymore. Yeah. I don't because I think because of sponsors and because of cars and because of teams and younger drivers, uh, sponsorships, the whole package, I don't think you're going to see them go that high. No, I'd love to see it though, but I, I agree with you. I mean, in, and it's just, you know, unless you're, unless you own a major yeah, company and you, you race on the side, you know, that kind of thing. Oh! So, 
But uh, well, Ben, as always, my my bulldog is barking here, so I guess that's Whoa. he's telling me he's got to go. So, but hey, as right. always, it's a great pleasure to talk with you here on the Lifetime in NASCAR. We're going to talk more next week, and uh, we'll have a lot about the Roval. We'll talk recap the Roval, and we'll also talk about the race at Texas, which is going to be a very pivotal race to kick off the round, the third round of the playoffs. So, Ben, as always, a pleasure. We'll talk with you next week right here on the Lifetime in NASCAR. See you, Jerry. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.